All right. Let's uh, stand and read together. Revelation 2, verse 8. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Actually, let me start over. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until the end and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Please be seated. Well, good morning and once again, as we head back into Revelation, I'm excited about our time together. But today we continue in our series on the seven churches, and we're on uh, the second church today, the Church of Smyrna. If you missed the first sermon on the church in Ephesus, then it's on the website, and I'd encourage you to listen to that. But this letter to the Smyrnans is uh, unique in a couple ways. First of all, it's the shortest of all of Jesus' instruction. It's the, by far the shortest. And number two, it contains no rebuke. So there's only two churches in the seven, of the seven that have no rebuke. Uh, Smyrna is one, and Philadelphia is the other. And just to help you remember how we're going to do this, I have an outline uh, that I want all the sermons to follow through. And if you take notes, this will help you as well. I've broken every sermon into the church in the city, the correspondent being the person who's the writer, uh, the commendation, the praise, the concern, the worries, the command, how to conquer these things, or how to deal with these things, I should say, and the call to conquer, how to stand victorious based on everything the churches are facing. And the key to remember in all of our sermons in the seven churches is that even though they're individual um, instructions and letters written to one particular church, remember John and Jesus intended the entire Asia, entire province of Asia, to hear every message each church had. had. So remember, even though it's written to the singular church, you'll find um, the, the phrase, please write this to, or tell the other churches, or he who has ears to hear, let him hear what has been said to the churches. And so it's plural in nature. And so we are to listen as well. And we're to ask the Holy Spirit as we're going through this, like, where does Genesis house fit in to what Jesus is saying? And where do we need to also heed the concerns and the commands and even look for issues of praise that we may uh, also encounter as well, which would be a great thing to think about. But again, this, is, this, this uh, whole sermon series is meant to capture our hearts on an individual basis and also as a church. So let's talk about the city and the church. I'll just show you a quick PowerPoint uh, of where Smyrna is located. So we did Ephesus last week. You'll see Ephesus in the bottom left-hand corner on the coast. Smyrna is directly north, about 50 kilometers as the crow flies. And uh, Ephes like Ephesus, it was a port city. And you can see it had a great big harbor as well in the Mediterranean Sea. But today, uh, this town of Smyrna still is in existence. So in today's uh, Turkey, where Asia was back then, uh, it's actually the town of, or the city of Izmir. Izmir, it's the third largest city in Turkey with a population of 4.3 million. 
So it's three and a half times Calgary, if you want to think of it that way. Now, it's a beautiful city today. I'll just show you quickly what this looked like. And I won't because my PowerPoint froze. So that's lovely. So we're going go through this again. Technology. My blessing and my curse. Try this all over. Okay, so that's modern-day Izmir. You can see if you live there how beautiful it is. You're on a hill for some of the city, and it's stretched over the harbor, and it's just an absolutely picturesque place to live. Now, in John's day, of course, it didn't look like that, but there are ruins there of uh, ancient Smyrna. And I'll just show you some of those. In its own way, it's beautiful as well. You can see the pillars, and there's a, down below was the ancient city. There was an earthquake, and so the city had to be rebuilt in 178 uh, A.D., and so there's like two levels, like there's the, the, the main level that most of the tourisms can see, but there's this deeper level that was a, a more ancient that goes back to John's day. So here's, here's this, the ancient city located in the midst of the modern city. And uh, this is a, some of the beautiful archways that uh, was built in the Roman time and whatnot. So it's gorgeous. And uh, that's an aerial view from a distance, this bat, the massive square that you can see. So again, there's... Um, Smyrna, you can still see the archaeological remains of the audiences that John is writing to today. So it's kind of cool. But uh, what's different about Smyrna in relationship to Ephesus is that Smyrna really has no biblical information about it. Ephesus is loaded with where the church was started from and also uh, a little bit of the history of how it was formed in the city. But Smyrna's got nothing. And so, unfortunately, with the exception of 1910 in Acts, which says that out of the school of Tyrannus, the word of God kept, kept spreading, which was in Ephesus, meaning that Smyrna was likely a church plant from the Ephesians. With the exception of that verse, we have nothing except extra biblical information. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of extra biblical information about the city, and you can do with it what, with what you like. <laughs> but Smyrna in John's day rivaled Ephesus as a chief principal city in Asia for two main reasons. First of all, like Ephesus, it was a port city, and it was strategically placed on a harbor and on the ocean, making it a large and prosperous uh, commercial hub for the region. But at the same time, Smyrna was like Ephesus in its religious devotion, except it had something up on them, a one-up on them. What was interesting about Smyrna was its renowned loyalty to, the, to Rome and its ritual worship of its emperor. And the reason for this is, is simply that Smyrna had the title of something called the Neokaros, the Neokaros. Now in Greek, that means temple warden. So what would happen would be this. If you, as a city, you would put your, your ballot in or your, your proposal that you would like to host a temple dedicated to the emperor and to the imperial cult. And so you'd submit your application to Rome and multiple cities would vie for that prestigious title. And then what would happen is the Roman Empire would vote on who got the right to be the Neokaros, the temple warden for the house to the emperor. Well, Smyrna actually won. And in AD 26, AD 26, while Jesus was alive, 
but not yet in ministry. He was a carpenter at that point in his life. Jesus was alive in Palestine. Smyrna was awarded the right to be the Neocheros, and so they built a magnificent temple to the emperor Tiberius. Now, according to a commentary I read by the name of Johnson, Daryl Johnson, he said that they also added one more for the Roman Senate, as well as the Empress Lydia. And he said it this way, Smyrna was dedicated to everything that would make Rome great. That would make Rome great. So needless to say, as a believer in that world, it was hard enough in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. But it'd be even more difficult when your city was the, the, one of the leaders, the Neocheros, and leading the charge and promoting the imperial cult and declaring Tiberius or whoever else was in power, Domitian, Domitian at that time, as Lord and God. And remember, unlike our, our society, religion permeated every aspect of culture, the social aspects, the political aspects, the civil aspects, the economics. So if you fail to participate in emperor worship, it affected every other area of life as well. So needless to say, life was going to be difficult for the Smyrnans. So let's look at the correspondent then. Jesus says this to them, the first and the last who was dead has come to life and says this. Now this description of Jesus being the first and the last who was dead and has come to life is purely from Revelation chapter 1 and 17. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and have the death of keys of death in Hades. So we've seen that description and Jesus uses it again to the Smyrnans. Well, this would make sense because the reference to the first and the last is that is a reference to God being eternal. That was a quote from Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 6. And so he's saying, I am Jesus, the eternal one, who existed before things all created and before history, and I stand at the end of history. But then he says, the eternal one uh, has also um, been dead and has come to life, speaking of a death and resurrection. So he's saying this to the church, I know you're about to head into suffering, but just remember who I am. I am the one who stands over the course of history. History is in my hands, and I've already stood victorious over death and any other forms of persecution. So this is, again, acted as a word of encouragement and reassurance to the believers in Smyrna who are about to endure the same path of Jesus Christ, a, a road marked as suffering with the potential to end in death. And so, stand strong, Smyrna. I've already defeated everything that you're about to face. So let's look at the commendation now. He praises them in three areas. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he says, I know your tribulations. I know your tribulations. Um, the Greek word for tribulation is to be under pressure, under pressure, to be compressed. I had a visual as I was reading this. I, I don't know why my brain went here, but automatically I felt, felt like I was at the doctor with the blood pressure. You know, when they put that thing around your arm, everything feels good, and then they, they push that little thing, and next thing you know, your arm gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and it's almost uncomfortably painful, and then they release it. You're like, oh, that was a lot better, right? And so... That's the kind of thing that you can, a visual, like they were, had the blood pressure gauge on them all the time and they were constantly under pressure and being compressed. Now, these distressing circumstances 
were uh, manifested themselves in various ways. We know for John in verse 9, he was exiled to Patmos. So part of his tribulation, his pressure was to be removed from the Christian community and put in isolation. Uh, for others, we're going to find out some more here, but it was going to mean imprisonment. It meant that they were being slandered by the, a group called the Jews here. And so we have different kinds of tribulation that they're going under. But the cool thing about this word is it includes more than just the physical. You see, the word actually also has to do with the stress of the mind, being compressed in the mind, pressures on the mind. In other words, they, they were experiencing emotional and mental things as well. And no doubt, when you live in a culture like that, because you'd worry about your security, you'd worry about your future, how, what, what you're going to have to face in the upcoming days or weeks or months, and even worry about the personal loss that you might face. And I started thinking about this in terms of our own lives as we work through these things as well. A lot of times the battle is, is like the hardest stress on us is actually what we think about. We'd almost rather get punched in the head because then it's over with. But it's the constant six months, one year of worrying about the same stuff that wears our bodies down. And I love Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 because he gives a, his resume of how many times he's been physically hurt. And he walks through how many times he's been beaten, how many times he's been shipwrecked, how many times he's been in danger and hungry. But then he finishes in verse 28 with this amazing uh, comment. He says, apart from these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So he'd lose sleep over worrying about his people, how they were doing. How are the Corinthians doing? How are the Thessalonians doing? And as someone who is your shepherd and loves and cares for you, I have also know the pressures mentally of what it is to care for you and what that actually can physically do to a person in terms of its toll. Not just saying that you're difficult, but I'm just saying that uh, everybody you love still requires an emotional commitment. And that can uh, show up in different ways. But then he says, I also know your poverty. I know your poverty. Nothing fancy here. The, the word is pretty simple. Poverty means economic deprivation. <laughs> they were financially going through hard times. Now, we're not given reasons as to why, whether it was a natural disaster or stuff. But, but based on the context of these verses, everything points to the fact that this poverty was totally related to the fact that they were connected to Jesus Christ. The poverty was only because of their connection to Jesus Christ. And so... Yeah, life was hard because before Christ, they were doing well, or potentially were doing well. You know, some of them would have been, and now things were tough. Now, we don't know what this would have looked like, but let me give you a scenario. Let me give you a, a, a made-up example of what it might have looked like to face economic hard times, but I'm probably not too far off in the suggestion. But remember, you're in a, you're in a city where religion is tied into everything. And you're a local businessman, and you have been doing really successful as a silversmith. You've been a very successful business person as a silversmith, and uh, as a non-Christian, life has gone well. Well, one day you hear the gospel that's come from Ephesus and the, the elders from the school of Tyrannus, and you're like, wow, like this gospel has like just impacted my heart, and I'm convicted by the Spirit, and you give your life over to Christ. Well, you head back into the local chamber of commerce, uh, um, and you get ready for your business meetings, and next thing you know, the, uh, it's time to pinch 
So take some incense and pinch it in your fingers and put it on the altar to Caesar. And then you sit around the table and you're discussing how you're going to share your resources and help each other along in business. And next thing you know, it's a glass of wine and it's a toast to the emperor. And then you're to thank him for his provisions and hail him as Lord and God and, and for, for how much he's done in your life. And you've, as a Christian now, are sitting there going, what do I do? What do I do? Because I only believe there is only one Lord and there's only one king of the universe and it's not the emperor. So you don't partake. And as time goes on, no more invitations to the Chamber of Commerce meetings. No more people frequent, frequenting your shop to buy your silver articles and do repairs. Your income starts to gradually go down and one day you go home to your family and say, honey, it's not looking so good. You see, the believers in Smyrna had not taken the mark of the beast spoken about in Revelation 13. You take the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, you are not allowed to buy and sell. And these, these believers had clearly not taken the mark of the beast. Gordon Fee, I'm giving you this as a suggestion because we're not told that the poverty was purely related to this type of thing. However, take it from a man who's smarter than me and what more studied than me, he said this, their poverty was probably related to them being followers of Christ in an intensely proud pagan city where such an anti-idolatrous, where such anti-idolatrous outsiders, such as these Christians, would be scarcely tolerated. But then Jesus says this, you might be poor by the world standards, but in my eyes, you're rich. You catch that? I know your poverty, but you are rich. And why? Because spiritually, they stood on the right side of God, and their rewards for their loyalty and faithfulness were going to come when they stood before him in glory. They're on God's good books because they were enduring for his name alone. The persecution would not exist if it wasn't for their connection to Jesus. But that reminds me of the verse in uh, John when he says, Don't, the world will hate you because it hated me first. And this was the issue for the Smyrnans. Ironically then, the opposite had to be true. If these believers were rich, that meant um, that the per their persecutors were the ones who were actually impoverished in the spiritual sense. They may have been rich materially, but they were impoverished spiritually. One other source of their tribulation, though, was this uh, interesting phrase, this idea, this idea that they were being slandered by, a, by those who say they were Jews and were not, but were a synagogue of Satan. This is an awfully confusing verse, so let me see if I can help make sense of this. In light of uh, history, with things like the Holocaust and uh, the constant anti-Semitic um, views of Jewish people, verses like these don't seem to help. And if you don't know what anti-Semitic means, it means Jew, Jew haters, basically. Hatred of the Jewish nation and who they are. And so, yeah, we need to make sense of these verses because it seems like Jesus himself is actually hates Jewish people by calling them satanic. 
Well, let's think about this now in terms of the, how the Bible portrays these things. We actually see fellow Jews calling other Jews, when they, when they don't see eye to eye over spiritual matters, calling each other Satan or attributing things to them as being satanic. Remember, Jesus himself is a Jew, and he encountered other Jews in three different ways in the scriptures in this conversation. Consider this. In Mark 3.22, the teachers of the law came to Jesus when he was healing and said, um, you are possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, who is driving out demons. So again, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being satanic in terms of his origins of power. Jesus turned around and told them that they were actually satanic. <laughs> he says in 8.44, you belong to your father, the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. So we have a Pharisee-Jesus confrontation, satanic, satanic, both get accusing each other of that. But here's the slam, like, like for me it's really important. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, his right-hand man, who was his number one disciple. In Matthew 16, 23, after Jesus denied that he would ever be crucified, he said, turn, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So again, we can see here that clearly the issues going on in these are not ethnic hatred. They're not using our cultural term racism. This is not a slant against the Jewish people as a race. This is a slant against someone who's in an inner Jewish conflict that doesn't see eye to eye spiritually over what it means to be the true people of God, how to think and to live out that life in terms of what he wants from you. So this is really, really important in the spiritual category. So what was going on then is that somehow these Jews, somehow these Jews in Smyrna then were clearly ridiculing and mocking and denouncing the believers. And it was, as a result then, even though that they were Jewish by ethnicity, because of their abuse of the Christians, he was calling them a synagogue of Satan, because they were, only, they were not Jewish spiritually because it didn't actually line up with Christ. This is why he also says to them, you are a Jew, but you really are not. You're ethnically a Jew, but spiritually you're not. And we see this language from Paul, right? Paul says this himself in Romans 2. He says, for he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul's talking to the, the Jewish people in Rome when he's saying, listen, you might be a Jew ethnically because you're circumcised and so on, but what God's looking for is, is your heart circumcision, that, it, that, that you've cut off all the, your malice and your sin, and you're seeking to honor God with the way you live. This is a spiritual condition. So what was the nature of the abuse? Well, we're not totally sure, but those of us in Acts saw, uh, who've been studying Acts know that Stephen went toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of, some of the Jews over some things. We saw Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Jews over some things, and we see Paul. And some of the key themes are this, that they believed that uh, the Christian people had perverted the way to salvation. They perverted it. I mean, you don't get right with God by not observing the Mosaic law. 
you need to get right with God by getting circumcised and obeying the Sabbath and eating certain foods. And the Christians are saying, no, you don't. It's by faith in Jesus. Circumcision means nothing. Obeying the Sabbath means nothing. I'm free to eat whatever I want. Well, there's one caveat, but we're not going to get into that. I've done that before in other sermons. But, but again, I'm pretty much free. Furthermore, um, the Jews believed Jesus to be a criminal. Only criminals got crucified. He was obviously cursed by God, and yet the Christians made him their Lord and God. They're worshiping a criminal who was crucified. So there's lots of things that they could have been slandering him over in terms of walking away from what they considered to be the pure means of salvation. But there's one more layer to this church that we need to talk about. One more layer, and again, you can do with this what you will, but this is uh, something I've learned through my studies. And the Bible actually supports a lot of this when you, when you actually look, look at it more closely. Um, apparently within the Roman Empire, Jews had been given special exemptions and privileges that were uni unique to other people. They didn't have to do military service, and nor were they obligated to participate in the imperial cult and worship Caesar as God. Now, I started thinking about that, and I was like, this makes sense to me. I always wondered if Rome required such allegiance, how in the world were the Jews in Palestine during Jesus' day allowed to have the temple and were allowed to like, uh, have the feasts and festivals and Passovers? Well, this, this would be the reason, the Jewish exemption. Not only that, every time Paul went into a, into a new city in the New Testament, Ephesus or anywhere, Thessalonica, he would go to the synagogues first. So there were synagogues present in a Roman idolatrous imperial cult type society. Even in Smyrna, there's a synagogue in the heart of the Neocaros, the temple warden. So this idea that Jews were exempt, is, uh, there seems to be biblical support to say, yeah, the Jews were free to practice their religion. Well, here's the problem, as you might start to think. The Jews also knew that their exemptions were paper thin. All it would take is one group to like threaten that exemption and to do something to put them in jeopardy, and they would lose it all. They were literally at the mercy of Rome, right? Rome could flex their muscle and say, well, you know, we decided, you know, this exemption is ridiculous. Like, you're back to emperor worship like the rest of the world. And that actually happened, I believe, with Calig Caligua, like in the, later on. He was the only one who tried to revoke it. But the point is, is that they didn't want anyone threatening threatening them and their exemptions. Well, these Christian people, what were they doing? They weren't worshiping the emperor. <laughs> to the Roman authorities then, they would look at the Christians and go, you must be, belong to the Jewish sect. And the Jews are going, are you kidding me? We have nothing to do with those people. We can't stand one another. And so what the Jews would have been doing is informing the Roman citizens about who was truly Jewish and who wasn't therefore exposing the Christians to, being, to, to public um, uh, arrest and being vulnerable and so on. If this is actually what's going on, then the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews is really this, that they're in, they're, it's not just that they're slandering people for what they believe, they're actually informing the Romans and, t and teaming up with them to get the Christians marginalized. And that's another reason why he could then say too, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're not aligning themselves with the true people of God one bit. And yet they say that the people of God. Now, I started thinking about this from biblical evidence as well. Don't we see that all the time in the Bible? 
Rome teaming up with uh, the Jews? Remember Jesus? How did they get? How did the Pharisees and Sanhedrin actually get rid of him? They had to get Rome involved to get rid of him. They're their enemies. But when it came to Christ and Christianity, they had no problem teaming up. Multiple examples in Acts of Paul spreading the gospel, spreading the gospel, the Jewish people going crazy, and they incite the Romans, form mobs and riots, and eventually kick Paul out of town. We see ample biblical evidence of this happening all the time. And so very likely, the slander could be in this category. But we don't know for sure. But there's an application you know, I was thinking about this as believers, as we live out our faith in, in Okotoks and in the surrounding areas. You know, we expect intense persecution from secular society. We expect that. But what we can learn from here is that we need to get ready to expect persecution from religious people who claim a religious affiliation to other organizations and claim to be the true people of God. That's also who we have to look out for. Highly religious people that believe that the true people of God that want to come after us because of our belief in Christ. The biggest issue will be, the, again, the means to salvation and who he is and who we declare him to be. Something to think about as we go to the streets of Okotoks in December and we seek to minister to people in this community. I'm curious as to what's going to happen. Hey, let's look at the concern in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Many of the commentators I read believe that the, the, the result of them going to, be going to be imprisoned and this whole persecution in this way was because of the Jews informing on them. So they link... The, this imprisonment to the Jewish blasphemy. Uh, I want to say that, but I can't actually declare that to be fully true because we don't actually know. It could be related to something else. But regardless, we know that life as a believer was going to get even more intense than it already had been while living there. So yes, they, they'd already been slandered. Yes, they'd always you know, had some pressures. They've been experiencing economic poverty, but it's going to get worse. They're now going to be put into prison, and some may even lose their lives. Some may even lose their lives for the sake of Christ. Now, what do we do with this 10 days? Because Jesus says it's going to be 10 days long. Well, again, I've told you right from day one, uh, I don't believe this to be literal. Could it be literally 10 days? Yeah, and you will hear pastors preach it was 10 days and away with it. But I don't, I'd be based on every other number in this Bible and the revelation being symbolic, I would suggest this number symbolic too. But regardless, it won't change anything. They're still going to go to prison. But if it is symbolic, which I believe it is, then I, here's what I think Jesus is saying. First of all, he's saying from heaven, I see you. I see what you're going to go through, and I'm letting you know that this time is fixed. It's a fixed time. It's not going to endure forever, but it's a fixed time. And not only that, it's going to be intense. So time's intense, but it's going to be fixed, and I know what's going on. So again, just a sense of ironic comfort to know that Jesus is aware 
of what's going to happen here. But Jesus also made it aware that it was going to be a test of their faith, a test of their faith, and no doubt. A test because this was going to be an increase from what they'd experienced so far. You know, slander, economic depravity, they've, 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 they've faced those things, but now their life's at risk, and they're going to be separated from the Christian community. Now, this test, of course, then was going to fully indicate where their loyalties lie. Were they going to align with Rome and the pressures they were putting on them, or were they going to align with Jesus Christ and what he would require from them? This is a true test. And they can imagine the Romans, right, coming in saying, listen, like, you know, Cheryl, I'll make a deal with you. You inform on your brothers and sisters where they meet, where they go, and what you believe. And if you worship the emperor, if you do that, you can be free. And I'll even spare your family. I'll even do that for you. And I'll even give you a, even a little bit of money to help you along because I know financially things have been tough. But all I want you to do is inform on your brothers and sisters at Genesis House. And you have a choice. Endure the hardship for the sake of Christ or give up your brothers and sisters in this church. You see why it's a test? Because on your very low days, when your heart's absolutely broken, when you miss your husband and you miss your children and you miss your friends, you give up your church family or you get free. It's a, it's a true test, church. It's a true test. And all you have to do is just, just take a little bit of incense and just put it on the altar at the next business meeting. And all you have to do is just raise a toast to Caesar. All you got to do, just those two little things, and life changes for you. Just in reading the book called The Heavenly Man by Brother Yoon, who I've quoted a few times, he says this, you know, in his time in prison, he would, he would go through uh, all these hardships that the Smyrnans were going through, and they had a saying they had a saying because he was often bribed to give up his fellow community to be free and to see his family. And, he's, and he said in his book, we had a saying that we will not be a Judas. We will not be a Judas. We will not turn on the Lord and our brothers. And that phrase is known in the Chinese church because they, they, they know there's an option to go the way of Judas or to go the way of the Lord. And they're in diametric opposition to one another and that is why it's a true test. But notice who the mastermind of this whole thing is. He says the devil is going to throw you into prison. It's the devil. I mean, uh, if I were to say, paint a picture and say, you guys, I want you to make a movie. Those of you who are cinematographers and artistic and stuff, say, make a movie of this scene. You'd have Joseph over there from the local synagogue portraying, you know, you know, informing on the Christians or slandering them. And over there, you'd have Marcus with a helmet on and his sword coming to arrest people. And you'd say, he's responsible. She's responsible. And you'd be looking at human agents as the source of the problems. What does Jesus say? It's the devil who did this to you. He's the mastermind behind the persecution that you're facing. See, what Jesus is helping them see is what's really going on with you guys is happening in the spiritual realm first 
before it comes to the earthly realm. And there's more going on, Smyrna, than, the, than meets the eye. And this, of course, made sense, right? Because when Jesus came to do ministry on this earth, he brought an immediate clash between two kingdoms. His kingdom, God's kingdom, and the Satan and his demonic kingdom. After the baptism, his inauguration into ministry, he goes into the wilderness, and who's his first battle against? Not a human being, no Pharisees, up against the devil. And the devil's tempting him over and over, saying, if you do this and if you do that, I promise you these things. When Jesus goes in to do miracles, he's up against the demonic world. I mean, probably the most famous one is um, the, heat, the casting of the, uh, the um, spirits into the swine. He's up against the demonic world all the time, and he's the clash of two kingdoms. And so because you're related to him and you know him now, you're involved in this spiritual battle. Prior to that, before you're a Christian, you're on Satan's team. Not much to do. As soon as you join Christ, you enter into holy war. You're immediately enrolled into holy war as soon as you claim Christ as your Savior. And I think it's important too, church, as we think about this, because we often get caught up in our political figures, don't we? And our family members who are antagonistic towards us. Oh, my auntie this, and oh, Trudeau that, and blah, blah, blah. Right? You know what God's saying? This started in the spiritual realms long before you even realized. Basically, every person that's anti-against you is a puppet from the spiritual forces above with invisible strings. He's the one masterminding all these things. And how does he do it? It's a massive conversation. He doesn't have to do it through possessing you. You know, some people, like the, the, there's random people are possessed by the devil and he controls them that way. But most, mostly, he gets his messages of the, because he's the ruler of this world, he gets his message out there. And as culture listens to his messages, we start, it starts to permeate our thinking and we start to go, oh, that message is attractive. Oh, that message is right. And we start to live out our lives in response to those things. So he gets his messages out there, and how he does that is just beyond me, to be honest. It's incredible how he does it. But once we embrace those messages, we are now as, we are slaves to him. And now when Marcus the soldier arrests me, or Joseph at the synagogue informs on me, I've bought the lies of the devil. It's no wonder Jesus gave the charge he did in verse 10. Look at the command. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. The word faithful, I looked it up just to see how many times it occurred in the New Testament and what it meant. And what was really cool is the word trustworthy came up over and over as a substitute my trustworthy servant, my trustworthy this, my trustworthy that. Faithfulness has to do with being trustworthy. So he says, be trustworthy to Jesus Christ until death. Now this is important because you don't have to die to be faithful. They're, they've already been faithful, right? Death is the ultimate experience of it, but be faithful even in the midst of slander. Be faithful in the, even in the midst of economic poverty. 
Because again, there's this temptation to, to be untrustworthy to Christ and to denounce him, to become, to, to experience culture and to have the rights and freedoms that you believe are meant to be met for you lived out. And faithfulness is going to be required because they were under pressure. They were being compressed. The pressure to conform to Roman ideology. Just incredible things going on there. But he says, if you are trustworthy and faithful, I will give you the crown of life. Now, this crown is not a kingly crown. The Greek word for crown here is not the kingly crown. It's the crown you would receive if you're a victor, like in the Olympic Games, if you're an athlete. So he says, if you be faithful and persevere to the end, I will give you a crown, a victor's crown, but not for getting first place in the discus, and on all the hard training and persevering you did with your diet to get that crown. A crown for the perseverance and loyalty and dedication in your commitments to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it's the crown of life. You, have, you get the crown to eternal life. That's the life that you get. Now, because this is such an incredible test and an incredible uh, pressure on, on, uh, on the, this idea of being faithful or not, Jesus has to give them one final admonition, and that's a call to conquer in verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's define what the second death is, and then we'll define the rest of the passage. The second death, clearly, church, can't be physical. Because every single person in this world dies. <laughs> so you can't, like, no one dies twice physically. Everyone dies only once physically. So the first death clearly is physical. The second death already tells you, therefore, where it's leading, and that's eternal, your spiritual destiny. Now, thankfully, Revelation defines the second death for us. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. In verse 14. This is uh, at the judgment, at the end of history. And God says this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So God has a book. This is all metaphorical, of course, but God's got a book. And uh, names are in it who are given eternity, or are going to have written eternal life on it. He says, the second death is those who do not receive eternity in terms of being with God. It's being thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the clear definition of what this looks like. So it's a, it's a picture of, the second death is a picture of being eternally separated from God at the end of days, as opposed to being in his presence. Go back to Revelation now. He says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So if you remain, think of what overcome now means in this context. Overcome means that you are going to remain loyal 
under the tribulations. You're going to remain loyal under economic poverty. You're going to remain loyal to Jesus under the blasphemy you're experiencing under the Jews. And you're going to remain loyal to Jesus even when you're in prison, even if even it means martyrdom. So that's overcome. He says, if you continue to love the Lord and remain loyal, you will not experience the second death. Now, with the risk of ending up in the exact same place I was last week for 45 minutes, we have to say the opposite must be true then. What if they don't overcome? Logic tells you, friends, they will be hurt by the second death. This perseverance, this loyalty is a matter of security, eternal security for these believers. But again, what's amazing about this is that this is not meant to scare them. This is one of the only two churches that has received no rebuke. He's excited about this church. He's grateful for this church. They st- like their, their resume gets read to all the churches in Asia, and everyone's like, wow, look at Smyrna, how amazing spiritually they, they are and loyal they are to Jesus. We need to learn from them. So again, he's not trying to scare them. He's just saying, let me, let me tell you what the, the reward is if you persevere right to the end. I want to leave you with this. How does one get there? <laughs> like, how do you get to that place where you'll be that loyal? Honestly, I don't know. I don't fully know. I don't think you'll really know until you go through it. But let me give you just a couple passages that uh, really speak to me. And I've shared this with you already, so forgive me that it's not new, but, it, but repetition is key to learning. One of my favorite passages, again, is Romans chapter, Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. And Paul was, gonna, was, was told he was going to suffer. And he says, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what I will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul can endure everything because he's come to a place in his relationship with Christ where he sees his own personal life as meaning nothing to him. It means nothing. It means jack squat, as I always say in my household with my kids. All right? It means jack. Everything about his life, he wants to finish the task that the Lord Jesus has given to him. And then I was, I was able to learn a psalm this week that I'd never seen these words to before. It's King David. Again, it's the same, same understanding like a thousand years earlier. Listen to these words from, in Psalm 23 and verse 25. You, God, guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. Whom, I, whom have I in, in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. A thousand years later, here's a man after God's own heart. And a thousand years later, Paul is saying the same thing. We really have to get to a place, church, where we are willing to be able to say, my life is totally living for Jesus Christ, and he is everything to me.
And that's where Christian community is so important too, because we strengthen and help each other to persevere and to remain loyal in trials. Amen. So what do we learn? In choosing to follow Jesus, persecution will eventually be inevitable. All of their connection of their suffering in these passages, in these verses, is only because they know Christ. They deny Christ, the persecution ends, but they're remaining loyal to him, and it's inevitable. Now, it may not mean it comes to the same degree as these Smyrnans, that we end up in jail or we end up like becoming martyred, but it, does, it will come if we stand up for what the Lord believes. It'll come in over you know, a Christmas dinner, <laughs> potentially, or in other areas where we're, we're talking about morality and what the world values versus what we value as Christians. But it's eventually inevitable that we will not face it. Number two, as followers of Christ, we need to remember that our persecution will not only come from secular society, but those who are highly religious and claim loyalty to God. I mean, the blasphemy was from those who said they were Jews, but were actually a synagogue of Satan. They claimed to be God's people. They, they lived religious, moral, upstanding lives according to like, you know, the world around them. And, and Jesus says, uh, we're not even remotely on the same page here. So again, I think this is important as we encounter people that often the, the greatest source of animosity may come from highly religious people and not secular society. Number three, as followers of Jesus, we need to remember that although we may suffer at the hands of men, our ultimate enemy is Satan, who seeks to destroy us in our faithfulness to Christ. Again, it's a spiritual battle. That's what Ephesians 6 says. There's lots of passages in the Bible that say this. But our ultimate enemy is in the spiritual realm and not on this earth. And I never forget, like, the, the transformation video series you watched, that became ultimately clear. What the world was facing in those cities, if you remember correctly, was poverty, murder, gangs, drugs, violence, uh, like, you know, rampant divorce, absentee fathers. Like, it just went on and on and on. Then when they started praying and fasting in the community, all of the spiritual uh, resources came to the surface of who was behind all this stuff. And they were all steeped in witchcraft and all sorts of things in those cities. Again, the battles against the devil and his spiritual forces. And finally, although followers of Christ may suffer emotional, verbal, physical, and economic hardships for the sake of his name, Jesus, A, is fully aware of what we are going through. Verse 9, I know your tribulations. I know. I know it's only going to be for 10 days. He knows it all. So again, comfort, knowing that Jesus is aware fully of what we're enduring for his name. And finally, he also promises eternal life for those who remain faithful. He says, I will give you the crown of life. If you remain faithful, you will not be hurt by the second death if you be remain faithful. Lord, we are impacted by this Mernon faith. We, uh, to be truthful, don't know fully how to relate to them as of yet in terms of the fullness of what they experienced. We uh, can relate to things like slander and 
maybe even a little bit of you know deprivation maybe with money or things like that like perhaps some of us have been left out of a a will because we're christians and our brothers and sisters you know received more or something like that just because of our faith or who knows but in the big picture we haven't lived the realities of smyrna so we have things to think about but we also know that as uh pressure increases and we get compressed that you don't leave us void and you don't leave us with uh your spirit's strength and the community of believers to also encourage us i want to thank you for the community of genesis house and i know that everyone here would have each other's back when push came to shove and we know that your spirit speaks strong in this church and you seek to comfort and encourage and guide us into truth and so uh as we move out into the future lord we trust you with our lives and we trust you with the direction of which way we're headed and i pray god that you would as the months and years unfold that you would bring us to the place of paul and bring us to the place of david where we really just we just live to seek to please you and to know you and to to walk with you and that is the source of our life and the source of everything to us and everything else is secondary. And I know that's a process and a journey. I know uh, hearing this message for myself 10 years ago would been way more difficult to palate and understand than it would be for me now. But I know if I was to step into the church in China, I'd have a lot to learn there as well. So we're all on a journey, Lord, and but we also know that your spirit will, will help us and guide us through wherever we're at in our maturity and understanding. And so we just pray that we continue to honor you as a church and uh, we continue to grow in our faith. In Christ's name, amen.